0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dr. Luke Johnson, and today I'm joined by uh, Dr. Jonathan Cook. We're going to be talking about Jack London's Martin Eden. I, uh, we, were to, we were going to do this yesterday. We had a <laughs> storm uh, cut out our internet. But I was telling Dr. Cook at the beginning of that, I found this book at a uh, converted bank uh, that's been turned into a bookshop in Martinsburg, West Virginia. And when I asked the clerk, if she had this, uh, I couldn't, the, the title escaped my mind at the moment. I, w- I was asking her, I was like, I need this Jack London text. It's, uh, it's kind of obscure. And I, she, that's all I really had to say. And she was able to, to deduce enough about me and what she had in stock. To, as I, before I could complete my sentence, she handed me a copy of Martin Eden. And it, it was this interesting synchronicity you know, there's very, I'm sure Dr. Cook, you know, there's very little analysis of Martin Eden online. I don't think there, there's like a handful of book reviews, no one who's done what we're going to do today. Yeah. But what I found in the cursory research of Martin Eden is that everyone who has read Martin Eden loves Martin Eden. There's no one who is dispassionate about this text. Do you think that's true?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've I've met a, a lot of people who have really been excited to read this, and uh, anyone who reads Jack London, it, it gets around to reading it uh, as well. I think there's a sort of romance about the novel. In fact, I was thinking, in a way, it's <laughs> in a superficial way, it almost has the Appeal of like an Anne, Ayn Rand novel, you know, like The Fountainhead or something, because of this, this rugged individual who's set against the world, who's determined to succeed. But of course, it it has a completely different moral foundation than you know Ayn Rand and and uh, and her school of writing. So uh, you know, it has this romantic aura about Martin Eden as as a as a um, romantic hero just like jack london was um but uh of course by the time you get to the end of the book you realize that you know his life was <laughs> he he considered himself a failure i mean he 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 achieved success and then threw it all away because he he lost his his value system his bearings so it's really um, uh, you know, it's it's a fun read. It's got some funny scenes. It's got some great descriptions of of um, what it's like to live with poverty, and um, and then uh, it kind of pulls the rug out from under you because it's not a it's not a Horatio Alger story. It's a it's a it's a kind of a complete reversal of Horatio Alger, and that the the success is not worth the the effort. You know, there's a, uh, there's a uh, inner despair that Martin Eden faces at the end of the books, you know, that is very sobering.
0: Yeah. Despite it being very nihilistic at the end. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, it's, it's it's kind of interesting to say you love such a nihilistic text. And well maybe you part of the reason, You love it until think,
1: until the last 20 pages. And then you kind of step back and say, "Well, what does that mean after all?" So,
0: yeah, I mean, I think obviously I would have wanted a different outcome. Um, I wonder, I wonder if this this book resonates with so many. I, I wonder if like the readership for Martin Eden is primarily male. I don't. I wonder how women view this text. But as, as a as someone who I guess would have been just a, who would have been kind of going through some of the things that Jack Lennon went through, you know, trying to prove his intellectual gravitas, trying his hand at writing, uh, trying to, trying to be successful in that realm and climb the social ladder. Uh, I wonder if this speaks something more to the egoic male drive than it does to the, to the, to the feminine and, you know, and maybe that's why it's not as well, you know, why it's not as recommended yeah. or yeah. passed around. I'm not sure if everyone universally responds to it in the same way and maybe that it suffers for that. I don't know. Yeah. Well, um, cause I, I found Martin Eden to be very relatable.
1: Definitely. So, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it's, it's interesting because it, I mean, a lot of us are, you know, I personally never faced the struggles that he faced, but I think every young man or every teenager, maybe not so much today, but when I was growing up, there was kind of the, the sense that at some point you did some hard physical labor to make money and prove yourself to, you know, stay, to stay in the middle class. You had to definitely uh buckle down and, and do some hard work so that that physical labor that he's doing I think is very relatable I mean uh, certainly today yeah I guess someone working in an Amazon warehouse could could really relate to Martin Eden you know as a as someone who does this backbreaking work and then uh, you know, struggles with his education, doesn't have the energy to do anything after a hard day's work, you know, when he's working that laundry laundry facility, that was just, you know, an amazing description of what it's like to to be engaged in that physical labor where you really can't do anything but drink after you're done with it, you know. Um, I mean, I did that in college, I had two summers I worked as a deckhand on a towboat on the Mississippi River and it was it was pretty good money because you you never got off the boat um or if you worked there you know throughout the year you were on for a month and off for a month so but I spent like two months on the boat straight so that was uh you know (laughs) an interesting experience um so uh it's hard yeah. for me to
0: imagine that there would have been activity that would have exhausted your intellect. Did you find that, yourself that you <laughs> that you you didn't Actually, have left in the tank? It wasn't
1: too bad, you know. the The most demanding work was when we picked up a bunch of barges and and we had to go out and tie them all together with steel cables and ratchets, and in the summer sun that could get pretty intense. But then you had a lot of time. Uh, when you were going, you know, between New Orleans and and the Upper Mississippi River, uh, where you were just doing routine chores on the boat. So actually, I did a lot of reading uh, on some of my shifts, and uh, that was that was pretty amazing that I had that I had you know had about a lot of time for that. It was during college, so it was good for me. Um,
0: I had but, a friend do something similar with a an Alaskan. Uh, fishing ship
1: yeah and
0: and when he got off the boat he had a whole album to record uh-huh yeah so yeah well people
1: are people are still doing it I mean I have another friend who who worked uh, as a, in the merchant marine I mean it's a very uh, Americans now uh, you know are a very small component of the world merchant marine fleet but you you know there's still a few hundred or thousand people who work um, on these tankers and other container ships you know making sure that they operate you know well
0: and anyway if anyone's interested in that i highly recommend uh Stanley Kubrick's documentary The Seafarers oh okay about the merchant marines it's uh it's uh it's on YouTube for free uh-huh. so you can, you guys can check that out but yeah um so where to begin i mean <laughs> So yeah, I, mean, I mean, guess
1: we're, we're, I get- let, let's just follow up on uh, you know we talked about uh, the Iron Heel last. So he wrote this a couple of years afterwards, and he's really uh, you can kind of see the continuity there in that you know this terribly oppressive uh, upper class that you find in the Iron Heel that is totally consolidated against working people that. That is isn't quite so intense as in Martin Eden, but you still get this sense of this huge uh, void between the working class and and the you know bourgeoisie who are all the professional people. You know Ruth Morse's father's a lawyer, and you know the people who hang out there are judges and successful businessmen. So the ethos of of um, you know uh money and making money and being able to make money is is really strictly separated from these people you know who are just struggling to put food on the table who are um represented by um you know the working class like the lizzie Connolly. you know the young woman who works in the cannery that who's you know could be a potential alternative to ruth morris but he decides that he he's not interested in her because she's she's not educated, she's lower class, so it's very odd the way he he she has just, rough hands. She has too. rough hands, yeah. <laughs> he just can't relate. I mean he's so driven to succeed and then when he does he he just loses his footing in, in, in the world, you know, and he's got two sisters who were married to sort of um, creeps who were very much devoted to just making money and uh, you know attaining a modicum of success so it's it really shows you the huge divisions between classes that existed in the early 20th century I mean just like today there was just an enormous gap between the the wealthy and and the middle and the working class and of course the middle class were all kind of hanging on to the coach tails of the wealthy trying to service them and you know be their lawyers and business people and aspiring after the 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 you know prestige of uh, making more money so it's not really it's a it's a it's really a the difference, of course, between Martin Eden and uh, the Iron Heel is that the Iron Heel, you know, it's organized. They're organized in socialistic uh, struggles. So, But Martin Eden is convinced that, you know, he alone can do everything. So he's, he's this rugged individual. It's kind of a Nietzschean figure who I think the despair of the end of the book is his realization that the individual... Doesn't really count for anything in the end, you know. You you really need to belong to your society um, because
0: that's where your your ultimate values lie. You know. So you think that London was like purposely letting us down to show us the emptiness of the (laughs) Nietzschean uh, Superman? Well, that's what he said. I mean,
1: when the book was published, uh, they everyone was saying, oh, well, London was showing that uh, you know, the, need, the nobility of the Nietzschean hero going down before the, the Philistines was the message of the book. And London said, no, they misread the book. The, the book was about Martin as an example of the failure of individualism, that he, his, his decline and death is really a symptom of the fact that his values are misplaced. You don't really feel that when you're reading. When you're reading and you're totally identifying with him and feeling everything is, you know, it's a riveting uh, account of what it's like to go into a depression and, and kind of lose lose your your bearings emotionally because um, he's just, you know, he just becomes, uh, I mean, he gives all his money away, the, the, the money that he was struggling to make so he could... Mary Ruth Morris and you know because she broke off the relationship because he wasn't making money um, he he thinks he can't go back to her and then he, he realizes that she wasn't really the person he thought she was that was that was very tragic
0: so well it's you know London gives us this binary between choosing between socialism or the or the Nietzschean hero yeah yeah but like this, you know. I've only read three of Jack London's texts, and they're all because of our relationship: uh, the jacket, or the Star Rover, uh, the Iron Heel, and, and now this. Does he? Does London ever do like a, a treatment of religion, or does where that comes in? Like, I mean, the idea of there being an individual before God, sort of a character guardian.
1: No, move. no.
0: Was he totally uninterested in religion? Or? Well, I mean, he he was kind I of can't a mystic. If it's, yeah, his
1: mother was a uh, gave séances and he was interested in, you know, psychic phenomenon. But he was for him Christianity was too tied in with the values of the of, of the upper classes. Although, you know, he obviously knew the Bible and he admired Jesus, but um, he recognized that the world he lived in which was creating these huge Populations of unemployed and struggling lower class people were, um, you know, the big issues were how to solve the, the pro- social problems of the day. You know, so it, he was a big fan of Herbert Spencer at first and Martin Eden, you know, is, a, is an avid Spencer fan. But of course, um, London moved on from Herbert Spencer because in the end he believed in in human cooperation he, he, he really drifted more towards uh, Thomas Henry Huxley who in evolution and ethics sought to sort of mitigate the negative effects of evolution by recognizing the importance of you know morality and, and justice and you know helping people uh, not, not letting uh, evolution you know the struggle for existence wreak havoc on society you know the the, spencer believed that these struggles would ultimately lead to an ideal human society but he thought that you shouldn't be too compassionate towards the poor or the losers because they were obviously unfit for the struggle for existence you know so that was that was why london i mean it was very exhilarating to read him at first but then he eventually kind of rejected him. So London is writing about his earlier self, um, you know, his self of the eighteen ninety late 1890s. He's writing from the perspective of 1907, 1908, when he wrote the book. He's looking back on his his years, uh, you know, when he was 21, 22 in 18. Uh, 97 98 just when he started to become famous you know he established his career at about uh, 1898 99 you know
0: i was i was curious because i'm i'm new to the authorship of london like i i was telling dr Cook yesterday that you know i i keep this little facebook uh poll going about my favorite books that i'm reading for the year And right now, all three of the texts uh, by Jack London that I've read are in my top 10, although Martin Eden is the lowest rated of the three. And the only reason I really did that is because Martin Eden really didn't hit me until like the last third. And then when it hit, it hit really hard. Whereas I felt like the other two texts, the Iron Heel and the Jacket, were consistently good, like right out of the gate. And I wonder, like is this something uh, does this speak to like the the abilities of Jack London cuz i have i've never read uh uh was call of the wild and white fang like, yeah. I, I i i'm unfamiliar with those like well did he kind of perfect his writing style later on or was he better early? what's your what's your take on well, where this falls in his arc of of authorship
1: it's interesting that you say that that the first two-thirds didn't... It wasn't bad. Yeah. It wasn't bad. Yeah. It
0: just wasn't as... Yeah. The other two were well, just Was it so when,
1: consistently good. Was it when Martin Eden discovered the the intellectual world of... Um, I think so. ...of Russ Brissenden and, the, you know, all the kind of um, intellectual ferment that he got involved with when he finally met some of the people that he could actually talk to and started, you know, when it got away from the... The world of the Morse family, where he was kind of stifled. Even though it, for him it was initially liberating to, to to work towards this ideal of you know cultivation. But the thing is, a, a lot of people say that London was at his best in his short stories, and mm. that he wasn't really uh, you know a brilliant novelist. But I don't know. I mean, I. I, uh, I mean, you know, White Fang is a, is an amazing book. I mean, you can read it as an adult, um, probably, you know, getting a lot more out of it than as a teenager. Call of the Wild, White Fang, those are novellas. So they're, you know, each about hundred pages and they, they're very well structured. They move along, uh, very well, um, so this was like his
0: first real novel. Well, no, he had
1: written he'd written about three novels before that. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, he wrote what were the
0: what were the, what were the ones that predate this?
1: Uh, well, let me think. He his early. Let me just look at the uh, list of his work. Yeah. He, he wrote, um, you know, his first books were collections of stories. Then he he you know he wrote a book called the the mutiny of the. El Senor that he wrote you know sea novels, he wrote the uh, the uh, Sea wolf, which was I guess about 1904. That's about 250 pages. so he wasn't he never wrote books that were you know four hundred 500 pages. Well maybe I should take that back. Maybe um, the Valley of the Moon is a late novel um, and that is probably about 450 pages. but uh, I think uh you know he was not. oh dang
0: iron heel came out before martin Eden. yeah
1: yeah the thing is he was not a jamesian writer he did not agonize over you know depicting every mannerism and change of consciousness and whatever he was he was really more interested in engaging in engaging with kind of big social issues uh intellectual movements of the time so um uh, you know, he's part of a uh, the the era early nineteenth, early twentieth century of um, uh, Upton Sinclair, Jack London, Theodore Dreiser. I mean, all of these writers, they're obsessed with society. You know, because that's the big issue. You know, class, poverty, um, corruption, and. Um, So that's why you read him. You don't read him, you know, for the brilliance of his plots because he's writing kind of instinctively. Uh, But it's funny, I didn't really... uh, To me, the the book, the big uh, interesting kind of pauses in the book are when he goes to sea or when he goes to work in the laundry. You know, he kind of disappears for a while and works at sea and then comes back. He kind of goes uh, uh, AWOL from Ruth Morse And those are, you know, somewhat weak because we don't, you know, and we hear a lot about the South Seas and the fact that at the end of the book he wants to go and live in Tahiti, uh, which is really a reflection of the fact that he was writing the book when he was in Hawaii and in, you know, cruising on the snark. His, yeah, I have his, so
0: many questions. His boat, <laughs> have s- his boat. So, <laughs> yeah. He 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 has a boat, yeah. That he names after Lewis Carroll. Uh, the Lewis, yeah. Lewis Car- do, ha, do so you, Can you shed any light on that? <laughs> I, I looked up that there's a, he actually wrote a book called The Cruising of the Snark. of the Snark,
1: a, yeah, a nonfiction yeah. book,
0: very entertaining. A
1: wonderful stories about going to Hawaii. I mean, he hung out in Hawaii for a while. He went to Tahiti, the Solomon Islands. And he got—he actually got uh, a, a disease called yaws, um, which it's like a bowel uh, issue. Yeah, isn't it? and he had to. He it was really terrible because he he only, he could only cure himself by he went to Australia to recover, and he could only cure himself with these medicines which had mercury in them, which ended up destroying his kidneys. So he, his kidneys were basically failing. When he died at the age of forty, you know, possibly by suicide because he knew he was dying, um, in uh, 1916. Very, very sad. You know, died at the age of forty, like Poe. You know, think of all the other books he could have written. Um, <clears throat> so it's funny because the you know he's writing this book about his struggles as a young man while, you know, in this beautiful, scenic. Um, escapade with his wife Charmian on their boat you know sailing around the Pacific um, but you know so he did it took a lot of brain power to recreate the world of his early struggles when he's you know living this this life as a kind of a tourist
0: with his wife's it's incredible to imagine how he, he tapped into that brain power while being so ill yeah I, I don't know how painful yaws is but yeah well i
1: think yeah i'm not sure how much it overlapped with the illness he was done by with the book in uh, the spring of uh, 1908 um this was like the first half of his of his uh he had about two two and a half years sailing and he he went back to san francisco at one point when he was writing the book
0: in the fall of uh, 1907 so i mean if if Iron Heel came out right before uh Mark Eden are they considered to be companion pieces at all i mean it seems uh, like we're getting two it seems like we're getting two different visions yeah from them.
1: very different visions i mean iron heel i think I think of it as kind of a wellesian uh you know utopian dystopian utopian novel and uh uh, uh you know, Martin Eden. Actually, Martin Eden is, is kind of Wellesian in, in its uh, depiction of uh, you know struggles to to uh, make one's living. Um, you know, like Tono Bungay that we talked about. The, mm-hmm. the character in that book, you know, starts out in a lower class environment, works his way up to success, and then you know realizes the futility of of his earlier ambitions. So, well, uh, I mean,
0: it's—I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that the book is autobi- autobiographical yeah. in some ways, right? Like, yeah. but how how autobiographical is it?
1: Like, well, I—I I was just reading the. Someone pointed out that Martin Eden. If you take the initials, <laughs> what do they spell? Me, 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 <laughs> me, 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 me. <laughs> right?
0: So wasn't he, wasn't Martin Eden like a person? He was.
1: He got the name of a. He was a Scandinavian immigrant worker. Uh, that he knew from uh, his you know, life um, uh, working on farms outside of uh, San Francisco. So it was based on a, a lower class guy whose name the guy he liked. There was nothing special about the character himself. But um, so London is, you know, his mother was alive when he was a young man. So he was not an orphan. He did. He had two sort of older sisters, just like the character Martin Eden, although he didn't have, Martin Eden had all all these brothers that we never hear about, but they're out working around the world. Um, London didn't have that. He had his stepsisters, um, uh, one of whom he was very close to, kind of helped raise him when he, he, you know, who was nine years older than him and who married a, um, a guy in the military. Um... So Martin Eaton, the character, is much more socially isolated than uh, Jack London was. But London, you know, struggled to get an education. He he did do some high school, and then he tried a semester at the University of California, but couldn't afford it. But when he was in high school in Oakland, he did know a family named Applegarth. So Mabel Applegarth is the is the uh, prototype for Ruth Morse, and London was friends with her brother Ted. So the friendship uh, with Ruth really began with her brother. Uh, you know, the, in London's life, it was the brother of uh, Mabel, um, and he did. You know, he he was infatuated with her. She helped him um, with his grammar and with, uh, turning him on to, um, books and music and painting, but he didn't really have that deeper romantic involvement with her as Martin has with Ruth. I mean, it's really, um, a, a just, you know, he took that relationship and, and made it into more of a, um, uh, you know, a novelistic saga of romance. Um, but uh, some of the other characters like uh, Ted Brissenden is based on London's friend George uh, Sterling, who was a famous Bohemian poet and character who was um, didn't kill himself, wasn't, didn't have tuberculosis, um, was uh, an interesting character in the literary artistic world of, of early 20th century, you know, San Francisco and um, so you know, those, those are the ma- basic similarities uh, Martin Eden, you know, is like London in that he, he presents himself as a sailor and London, of course had a boat at the age of 15 and was an oyster pilot on San Francisco, Oyster, uh, pirate rather on San Francisco Bay and then shipped out at 17 on a um, a voyage with a Scandinavian uh, captain um, that uh, to to uh, bring seals back from the coast of Japan, and that was the basis for his novel, The Sea Wolf. Um, so uh, you know, semi autobiographical book, um, and and of course Martin Eden's. Struggles as a writer is very much based on London's career, which uh, suddenly blossomed, you know, when he was in his about uh, 23 years old, after he had been sending lots of stories and sketches out to magazines.
0: Um, I, I loved all the uh, titles. Titles, Martin, yeah. The Shame yeah, of
1: was, the Sun and some oh, of those. Yeah. Some of those actually. They were so uh, epic uh, yeah, sounding.
0: Yeah. Like they would make for great. <laughs> I don't know if anyone is looking for a title for their book, but I would suggest going here. I don't know if anyone's actually like. Well, some of them are
1: actually re slight distortions of books and poems written by George Sterling and some of the other uh, intellectual bohemian characters that, that London knew at the time um, that he was friends with. So anyway,
0: so the, stuff. I was...
1: the other the other form, of course, the, that the book embodies is the Bildungsroman, you know, which is the famous... Oh,
0: not just that, form. right? I learned a, I learned a new and word Kunz, today. And the Künstlerroman as well. <laughs> Kunz, how do you say Künstlerroman.
1: Yeah. Künstler so. means artist. Uh, so the the novel about the artist and Bildung means uh, education or formation. So the, the novel, it has those German terms because Goethe was the one who pioneered these forms with Wil- Wilhelm Meister, um, which has two parts to it about a, a young uh, man who's, you know, maturing in life. And uh, so it's a, it's a common form in literature. I mean, uh, Dickens, um, David Copperfield is a building from on, Flaubert's uh, Sentimental Education, Melville's Pierre is a buildings roman and a Kunstler roman because it has the hero is a is a writer Um, so it's about a young man who is attempting to sort of mature and learn and survive in society you know and the end of the book usually um, involves his establishing himself in a profession that he's that he's become competent to support himself as a, as a human being, you know, and usually he's in a city and he has had an unhappy love affair, but it usually ends positively with <clears throat> the idea of you know kind of earning your place to uh, to make a living. Um, so you know the book follows all that except for the very end, and then it kind of tips the whole thing upside down.
0: <laughs> yeah. So we have this distinction about it, also being a naturalist or a realist. Realist,
1: yeah. Well, I consider kind of the naturalist ending. It reminds me of Edith Wharton's um, House of Mirth. You know, with uh, the, the heroine of that book, you know, accidentally killing herself after she's sort of realized that she's not going to have this romance with her, the love of her life. Um, so. Uh, you know, it, it sort of mixes things up because the realism is the major form because he's he's providing very, you know, realistic details about making a living, about lower class life, about um, just, you know, the world as it exists in Oakland, California in, you know, 1898 or something like that. Um and, and the stories of the gang fights and the drinking and the the lower class world that he's trying to pull himself out of but he secretly identifies with uh, that you know that's all sort of um, you know re- realism uh, with naturalism sort of a combination and then it has this touch of romance in the in the dream of the South Seas as a kind of escapist adventure that He's thinking of periodically that he uh, <clears throat> is is a way to, you know exit from his his life struggles there. But you know, um, London is working in in the realist tradition pretty much. Um, he's pretty much comparable in England with a guy named George Gissing, who wrote about the struggles of of, of uh, you know writers and. Uh, people in the 1880s 1890s in London and England you know interesting novel a novelist rather that I don't think London really knew uh, very well but certainly comparable in in his you know position in, in the literary world
0: I think that sums it up pretty well um You know, we've been talking a lot about the similarities and dissimilarities between Martin Eden and the Iron Heel.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, Perhaps more can be said about the differences in the the class struggle or the class system that's in place there. We have different subjects going through it, but maybe we can say, what about the totality of those systems?
1: Well, Well... I mean, you see the similarity in that Martin Eden is, you know, fiercely um, contemptuous of, eventually contemptuous of the of the world of the Morse family and the judge and the and the kind of life that Ruth wants him to aspire to. You know, to become a a lawyer or a uh, um, you know work in the post office. Uh, but do something, and, uh, you know, work your way up, and maybe eventually, if you're a lawyer, you'll end up on the Supreme Court, or something like that, so, you know, there's some amazingly uh, brutal, one scene of these brutal uh, scenes where Martin, you know, insults the, 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 you know, judge, I think Butler is his name, and um, uh, that really kind of takes you back to the Iron Heel, where, Uh, You know, the main character there is ruggedly outspoken in front of these audiences of professional upper-class people. And, you know, he's unafraid to tell them the truth about the class system and the suffering of lower-class people that's perpetrated by this kind of corporatist state that um, doesn't really... Um, provide a break for people. I mean, there's no, you know, unemployment insurance. There's no disability. There's, you know, employers get to destroy their employees with, <clears throat> with impunity, <clears throat> and that <clears throat> that's something that, you know, in Martin Eden you don't find that brutality lurking there, but you find the sort of um, the sort of class consciousness that these bourgeoisie have that promotes beauty and fine living but of course to do that you have to enter one of the traditional professions you can't be a writer um you can't be uh you know you'll you'll never succeed if you unless you s- educate yourself and um, <clears throat> want to work your way up the, the you know the job ladder so martin eaton is is isn't as um, focused on the class struggle but it's it's kind of beneath the surface there and you know you yeah. you see the maria silva his landlady you know you 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 feel compassion for a woman who is struggling to feed her family <clears throat> and that martin eden eventually helps out uh, because he 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 sees the kids her kids running around without shoes and not getting enough to eat so you're, you're aware of the, the struggles of the classes, but it, it's not the main theme of the book.
0: Yeah, it's not as brutal. Yeah.
1: I mean, you're uh, not, there's not violence between classes going on.
0: I'd say the most graphic and brutal aspects of it are like how he has to like ration his money and his yeah. food as he's like starving right. uh, before he attains success.
1: Yeah, and he's uh, putting yeah, everything yeah. in a Pawn, you know, Pawn's his typewriter, he Pawn's his best suit, so yeah. he can't see Ruth because he's his, his best suit is in Pawn, and the other scene I really like is the working in the laundry, you know, with mm-hmm. this constant uh, uh, steam and hot water and wringing out clothes, and it's all too make the wealthy people who who are at this summer resort you know be be able to wear their beautifully pressed outfits you know guys and, and women with their elaborate dresses and <clears throat> and and gear you know and you really understand that the beautiful pictures you see of people and you know upper class people sitting uh, on the porches of these big hotels and whatnot all the all the lovely. Clothes they're wearing, uh, spotless clothing, has, has been made that way by all the sweaty workers, you know, who are washing and ironing those clothes uh, just, you know, 12 hours a day or 14 hours a day.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's like, I, to be honest, I think there's like a, I, I say that it's a more subtle. Uh, portrayal of the class structure, but like, there's a brutality to it. Like, yeah, when he's and I, perhaps why I related a little bit more to this, where he's doing everything he can to be successful, it's not working out, and like, the, yeah, the yeah. love of uh, the love of his life mm-hmm. is just kind of like, hey, like, just <clears throat> just give this all up and yeah. what sell is, uh, out and be a clerk or whatever, you know.
1: What did you think about? Uh, when he was you know these publications that eventually accepted his work these magazines that accepted his work and then they wouldn't pay him you know right? because right. he calculated very carefully how much he would get from each <clears throat> piece of writing how many words it was and he sent it in and he was ecstatic when it, accepted, when it was accepted and then he finds out that some of these places are, are not paying him because they're unstable financially or they're just contemptuous of their writers and then course he goes into those two places and one he shakes him down by beating up one of the editors so it's kind of odd i mean he i guess you understand him because he's he was so um crazed for for money and starving you know that he he didn't see any problem with physically attacking these editors who were who were high who had the money and wouldn't give it to him so i mean it's a bit shocking for a writer (laughs) to go into an editor's office and and uh, punch him out to get, you know, $5 that you were owed, or 15 or $20.
0: <clears throat> yeah, I'm trying to think who, <laughs> who it's like, uh, I mean, it, I, I don't know who that would be completely analogous to, but that sort of antics would be, I don't know, maybe something like Hunter S. Thompson or something yeah, like that. I'm not sure. Uh,
1: <laughs> well, you wonder if that actually took place. I guess it must have taken place occasionally, but um, it was you know it was actually kind of a golden age of magazine writers in the turn of the century because you had a huge audience for all these you know story about short story writers and um, journalism so you know William Randolph Hearst and and uh, Pulitzer I mean they had all these magazines and newspapers were were just packed full of <coughs> fiction and nonfiction a lot of it was crap but you know you if you got established you could actually make a living at it for for uh, for a certain time as a, even as a short story writer like O Henry. True sure. sure. and, and you know, and London made millions on his fiction and non fiction, you know. He he had a what, a thousand acre ranch. He supported his his family. Um, you know, he had a he built himself a sixty foot boat, you know, the snark so he he lived pretty well, but he worked incredibly hard to to keep the money coming in you know so
0: still have so many questions about that boat yeah did did it's, he have a he, he, I, i'm he, gonna i'm gonna have to read I was just looking at his well earlier I was looking at his uh authorship i I'm gonna have to go through that snark book, yeah, but also what well, what was intriguing to me is I don't know if you've ever read this unfinished book that he did called The Assassination Bureau. No,
1: no, I've just heard about it, but
0: uh, it's That looks It came out in 63. Yeah. Unfinished when he died. Yeah, that looks pretty crazy. Yeah. Um I I have a feeling I'm going to be spending a lot more time with Jack London. Yeah. Uh, we t- we talked we talked about the influence that Herbert Spencer had on London. I mean, did we exhaust everything we want to say about why who's particularly infatuated with him? Uh, no. I mean, you know, we we really forget how
1: influential Spencer was, and, and of course his term "survival of the fittest" was was uh, something he invented, not Darwin. So you know, the idea of social Darwinism was was really the sort of the brainchild of Herbert Spencer, and that was a huge influence on later nineteenth-century American culture very much embraced by the plutocrats of the time like Andrew Carnegie and, and uh, you know, Rockefeller. So, um, you know, it's important that London, I mean, he he immersed himself in Spencer. Now, today, Spencer's having a little bit of a revival. I mean, he was kind of widely scorned throughout the 20th century as as just, uh, you know, being, I mean, he, he built he, everything in his world was integrated, I mean, he was a big systematizer, so he, he was a sociologist, he was a psychologist, um, he, uh, uh, you know, had a huge influence, and, um, and then pretty much, you know, petered out in the early 20th century, and became kind of, a, you know, thought of as a, you know, totally outdated and discredited Victorian intellectual um but you know london totally embraced darwin he read darwin he read spencer he read huxley and so he was very much you know on the cutting edge of of evolutionary theorizing in the in the late 19th century but fortunately he he made the switch from the spencerian vision of of you know rugged individualism and you know the fact that we should not Uh, structure society to aid the losers um you know he moved on from that to a more huxleyan idea that you know cooperation is is vital to human flourishing um and you see that you know by the fact that he became a socialist and that you know he wrote the road about traveling along with this army of hobos in 1894 trying to uh draw attention to the problem of unemployment during a huge economic downturn and so um, you know so he was kind of a um, uh, a petri dish of all kinds of you know intellectual growths of the time and reflected them of course you know one of the less uh, appealing aspects is he sort of bought into the sort of racialism of the time The you know the idea of racial superiority but then even even then, you know, when he went around the Pacific, he sort of toned down those ideas about, you know, white superiority and realized, like Melville in the Pacific, that, you know, the white race has really done some horrible things to to other, you know, peoples in, in the world. Um,
0: Did he have a personal relationship with Thomas Huxley? No. It, it's interesting because... I'm just curious you know oftentimes you find that a lot of these leading yeah. figures n- know one another yeah. Well, it's interesting Hux- Huxley, Huxley was dead d- by the time he was kind of intellectually mature oh uh, okay yeah. I see but then it's it's interesting the the uh, the Iron Heel is frequently spoken of as like a forerunner to Brave New World yeah. I, mean, I don't know if yeah um, Aldis how much familiarity Aldous had with uh, he probably
1: I'm sure he read him um, yeah. and I mean, know, for instance, or- like, not
0: a, I think I may have even told you this is that, like, uh, that Aldous Huxley was like George Orwell's French teacher Eton. Oh, really? So, yeah. So, yeah. So it's like, is it, is it beyond <laughs> the realm of possibility that, that Jack London knew both Thomas Henry Huxley and Aldous Huxley? <laughs> I mean, if Aldous Huxley could be George Orwell's teacher, I think.
1: Yeah, well, I don't. Possible. He went to London in the early 20th century, but I think he was pretty much spending all his time living with all the homeless people uh, to re- be able to write the book, "The People of the Abyss." So, I mean, he he was he read a lot of English writers. He corresponded with some of them, but he wasn't really familiar with that many Victorian intellectuals. Gotcha.
0: Um, gotcha. Gotcha. So, well, he we talked about. Huxley, Spencer, yeah, Darwin. Are we missing any other? Well, intele- Nietzsche. Intellectual- Nietzsche was an
1: important influence, um, like some other Americans at the time. Uh, so, you know, there's some allusions to Nietzsche and Martin Eden, and uh, you know, Martin is kind of trying to be an Ubermensch, and um, he, uh, you know, he kind of embodies the the tragedy of the Nietzschean individual, you know, just like Nietzsche himself, you know, went crazy and, and uh, died fairly early. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, you know, Spencer, Nietzsche, Darwin, Huxley, um, these are all kind of, you know, currents that are moving through Martin Eden below the surface because they were part of um, London's life, you know, really, you know, incredibly vigorous intellectual life. In fact, he, you know, he lectured at Harvard and uh, a couple of other universities um, as a as a socialist, you know, promoting his his ideas. So he um, he was recognized into in the you know intellectual world then as a as a leading voice for you know important ideas.
0: Yeah, I was gonna. That's interesting that I didn't know he lectured at Harvard. On on oh, oh, socialism. I was, yeah, I was like, oh, well, maybe we have some recordings, but no, he died in 1916, so yeah. probably not. Um, we talked a little bit about. Well, I, I, spoiler alert. I mean, this book's been out for, you know, <laughs> over 110 years. So uh, yeah, you know, he he, you know. We've t- I guess we've already talked about how he kills himself at the end. Um, my take on, like, why he kills himself at the end, it's, yeah. a, it's a pretty graphic attempt at drowning. He's, yeah, he's finally right. successful. Right. Is that, I mean, th- this is, I haven't thought about it as much as you, but, I mean, I think he kind of comes to the realization that everything he was striving for, was illusory and that all the people that he held in such esteem that were above him turned out to be really no greater than the downtrodden members of society. Yeah. And I think it just filled him with despair so much that he just wanted to end it all. I mean, there might be more to it than that, but that's kind of...
1: Yeah, well, figure everyone around him had, uh, you know, disappointed or abandoned him. I mean, Ruth broke off the relationship <clears throat> and then she wanted to get back with him when he had started making money. And <clears throat> she claimed that she went to visit him where he was living um, against the will of her family. Well, it turns out later, Martin finds out that her brother was waiting for her outside. So, you know, it was kind of a planned attempt to renew the flame. Um, after she broke it off because he didn't have enough money. So he's, you know, he's disgusted by that. Then his friend Russ Brissenden kills himself without, and doesn't say anything to him beforehand. He just disappears, and then Martin has to track down, you know, his hotel, and it turns out he killed himself five days earlier, and Martin didn't know anything about it. So there, his main intellectual um, soulmate has killed himself, Um, be out of despair partly because he I guess he had terminal uh, tuberculosis it's implied so he's lost his best friend he's lost his romantic interest Um, he has all these people around him and need money need support so he decides he's just going to give them all his money you know his sisters and his landlady and uh, it's kind of like he's given up, you know, success is nothing like he wanted it to be, he doesn't have love, he doesn't have friendship, so <clears throat> he really has nothing, he has no s- emotional support, he has no family uh, to speak of that he, he relates to, he has no Lonely class identity, top. yeah, he's, and he doesn't belong to his working class roots, and he doesn't belong to the bourgeoisie, <clears throat> so he's really in a void
0: uh, you know. If only the dude had read some Kierkegaard. Yeah. I think it would have done him <laughs> good. <laughs> uh, but I don't know. Even uh, Kierkegaard died young. So. Yeah. What did Kierkegaard die of? TB? Uh, they, The story keeps changing. Yeah. Um, you know, for a long time, there was sort of this romanticized narrative that like it it had to do, like, he died when his money ran out and there were, like, you know, the, the, the cumulative effects of never getting over his relationship to Regine Olsen. Uh, more recently, people have speculated that he might have had some sort of sp- uh, spinal yeah, he had virus a, or something like that. He had like, a hunchback, right? Or a slight, He or it deb- was it well, scoliosis?
1: Is, or what was wrong with him?
0: Well, you know, this gets into, like, the reliability of, of the historical evidence. You know, we don't have a lot of images of Kierkegaard. And how, know, we have, how old was he when he died? Uh, I believe he was 42 years old. Yeah, so I, early I 40s, it, yeah. Yeah, I, I think he died in his 42nd year. Yeah. Um,
1: but... No illness, nothing, nothing, Well,
0: that's the speculations. people, apparently this narrative about, you know, psychological issues and financial issues, people are like, you don't, you don't just up and die of these things suddenly. So there's been some effort to medically substantiate some sort of illness that would have caused him to die. <clears throat> and the spinal thing is out there because, uh, you know, we, we don't have a lot of images of Kierkegaard, and they vary kind of widely. They, you know, there's no photographs of Kierkegaard. He could have gotten his photograph done, yeah. but he, he didn't. Yeah. So we have sketches of Kierkegaard, and we have the, we have the, uh, the, the dreamier, hunky philosopher uh, versions of him, which I believe, I have to check, but I think it was done by a family member, maybe even his uncle, but he didn't even really sit to finish them. And then we have the caricatures of him with the hunchback from the the magazines that he started a controversy with. So there, it, I guess what he ultimately died of is, is is speculated upon. I haven't checked the literature in a while. Maybe there is a new consensus that he died of TB or something yeah. like that. But, right. you know, 10 years ago when I was deeply in character research, it was like a broken heart. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. Um so, but but uh, London
1: was, you know, he had suicidal tendencies. I mean, he, he was contemplating suicide just when he was on the brink of success like Eden in, in the late uh, 1890s, you know. Um, and, I, you know, he could have killed himself when he knew he was going to die of um, kidney failure. So definitely he was writing from his own experience, I think.
0: Well, this is odd, though, that Martin Eden is me, right? Yeah, is Jack yeah. London? Uh, the guy dies by suicide, and now, yeah. you're, now there's speculation that Jack. Lo- it's like it foreshadowed. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, so he, he might have had had he, this ideation for a while. Well, he destroyed his health by getting
1: you know going to the South Seas and getting yaws, and then. Uh, the only treatment being uh, these mercury compounds that, I guess, um, you treat your, your you know skin with it.
0: It's so. a long history of, like, brilliant men ac- accidentally killing themselves with mercury stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I sent it to you. I don't know if you had a chance to take a look at it, but apparently they fi- they there's a new version of Martin Eden. I don't know... They made it into a movie? Yeah, there's a 2020. movie version
1: in twenty twenty, an Italian version. And a friend of mine saw it and said it's really good. So I uh, have as yet to see it. Um but I saw
0: the ratings. <laughs> yeah. The ratings were pretty good, but then I read an article that Roger Ebert did and he was like, Ah, this sucks. And oh, I was really? like, Well, okay. I generally like Ebert. Yeah. I generally I generally think he's on point, but he's he's really whiffed on a lot of reviews too. So
1: Yeah, I definitely I have a friend uh uh, who was a literary scholar, and he said he lo- he liked it. So I I think it's it's a competent uh, adaptation to an Italian setting. With, you know, takes place in Naples.
0: If um, the re- if I recall what Ebert said in his review, I think he just thought the symbolism was he- heavy-handed in the film. Yeah. So yeah. So th- we and we kind of get back to the question that started this all off. I mean, how is what is the reputation of Martin Eden today? I guess it's. I guess people are catching on to it if they're making movies and you and yeah. I are talking about it. It's it seems like it's it it's holding its I, own. I, I think like I mean the little bit that I've I've dabbled in out there, it seems like anyone who's read it loves loves it. But it takes a while for people to find it. I so
1: Yeah, well it's I, in I, uh I, it's in a penguin paperback. It's in the Library of America collection of London's novels, so it's it's still Available in print. Is it your favorite
0: of of uh, what he's
1: done of London? I, I really love his nonfiction and I love his short stories. Yeah, uh, his South Sea tales are just brilliant. And uh, well, where do
0: you th- where do you think it stands in regards to his novels? Uh, well, it's supposed to be his best book. I mean, I you think I, so? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I haven't read uh, that many of them. I mean, I think they're half a dozen. It's uh, you know one of my projects to fill out my knowledge because there could be some gems out there that no one is reading like you know valley of the moon or uh, the mutiny of the elsinore uh some of these books are i mean undoubtedly they're great stories but um you know the question is are they hack work or are they really you know worth reading or not
0: well i'll tell you what i love me some jack london so if you're gonna yeah, let's uh, let's do if some wanna, more. I'm thinking of yeah.
1: his book about prehistoric man. Uh Which bef- one is that? before Adam. <laughs> it's a novella and uh, it's a it's a it's a brilliant uh, accounting of life a primitive man. It's it's kind oh, of yeah. like uh like like uh, those novels of Jean ouel you know, the 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 uh, romance of the of the cave dwellers and those kind of that kind of fictional world. I'm looking
0: I'm looking at the wiki page for it. Yeah. And it's, it's like <clears throat> it's like eight lines. No no one knows about this book. Yeah. <laughs> or, or yeah. At least no one no one has taken the time to really yeah. well, do anything. Maybe we'll take a look at it next time. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Um oh, yeah, that would be awesome. So it's your favorite book of his? I mean, is it to to London scholars? Or do they think it's his best book?
1: Uh, yeah, generally. I mean, I okay. was surprised. On the JSTOR uh, academic archive, there are only like eight articles about it. You know, for a, ma- yeah. a major important work, really, it's very little. I mean, yeah. there's there's at least, you know, a dozen books on London, scholarly, scholarly books on his fiction. Um, but um, um, so I'm surprised just the, the you know, how few there were in the official archive of articles. So
0: more work to be done. Well, I, I think we are the first to talk about this book in this format for as long as we have, <laughs> as exactly yeah. yeah. as we have. Well, So hopefully that that's, uh, causes a bit of a renaissance with the text. Uh, I loved it. I didn't love it as much as, as the jacket and, and Iron Heel, but I mean yeah it's very it's, readable. i mean I, I so loved it i, mean, yeah. I've got, I love i i haven't read something by Jack London that I disliked yet, so yeah. this guy is crushing well, you know
1: around the world London is considered a major american writer i mean he's he's uh he's acknowledged, why do, we sleep he's on, why, do why, why do we kind of sleep on him here well because he's pegged as a boys writer you know uh call of the wild got Canonized is a book that everyone reads in you know junior high school, and that really has an effect because, I mean, if you if you read Call of the Wild and 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 uh, uh, White Fang now, I mean they're a wonderful story. White Fang, man, that's a a brilliant book. I mean it's the best, probably the best book ever written about a dog, <laughs> but it's really about society, human society, and 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 uh, the natural world. You know, it's it's like watching a brilliant. National Geographic special, you know, six-part <laughs> series, because the dog goes from living in the Yukon in the wild, and then he goes to California. One of his masters takes him there, and he he has to adopt to the civilized world. And he really, you can totally understand, you know, from the dog's point of view, you know, the struggles that he has to to uh, make that transition. But uh, it's it's a wonderful story.
0: Well. I've enjoyed talking about this story with okay. you, and and I look forward to talking about more London. We probably just for the sake of our listeners, who probably bring yeah. us to a club, okay. <laughs> so it's not too burdensome for them to listen to. But uh, let's talk some more about what we, we want to cover next.
1: Okay, good.
0: All right, thank you, Doctor.